On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Richard Cross about Christology and metaphysics in the 17th century. So we'll cover all sorts of topics, like what are the different models of the hypostatic union in the 17th century? How are they different? How are they the same? We cover topics like what is the nature of accidents and dependence relations? What is the order of subsistence and existence for each model? And we cover other topics like what view or position did Reformed theologians, particularly in the 17th century, opt for when it came to models of the hypostatic union? And which model of the hypostatic union is most congenial to divine simplicity? And are some models of the hypostatic union more voluntaristic in nature? And is this a problem? and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, George Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And we want to do that with a couple of intellectual virtues in mind, things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and for us, cheerful confessionalism. This doesn't encapsulate all the virtues that we want to encourage. Um, and sometimes, you know, if, if, if you're a medieval or a patristic nerd, you might hear you, we're reprising curiosity and, well, that's a vice in some context. Well, we don't mean it that way. We mean it in, in the positive sense of just being interested in what other people are saying and why they're saying it. And today I am super excited. I'm thrilled to introduce you all for uh, a second time on the podcast, Dr. Richard Cross. So if you don't know uh, Dr. Cross, you should. Um, I think everything he's written is valuable. Um, I return to it all the time. So there, there are certain types of works that you read once and it's helpful, uh, but then you move on. Uh, Dr. Cross's work is not like that. I return to it all the time because it's packed with insights and is extremely helpful. So if you aren't familiar with him, you should go Google his work and go buy all of it. Uh, so I find everything valuable. And I am really thrilled to talk with him about this topic. So we're talking about a new book that he's been working on, on sort of Christology and metaphysics that goes on with that in the 17th century and beyond. I think this is going to be a lot, a lot of fun. So Dr. Cross, before we get started, uh, for those of our listeners who just aren't familiar with you, they hear Dr. Richard Cross and they don't know who that is, where do you teach? What do you teach? And then what uh, led you to write this particular book? Well, I, I teach at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana in the United States, um, where I am professor of philosophy. Um, before I was at Notre Dame, I taught in Oxford for 16 years, so I was a fellow of Oriel College. Um, and then I was teaching in the theology department there. Um, and I've written a sequence of books, or I'm writing a sequence of books on Christology. Um, 30 years ago, I did my um, PhD on Scotus's um, Christology, and I wrote that up into a book, The Metaphysics of the Incarnation from Thomas Aquinas to Duns Scotus, in 2002. And for a long time, I'd had a plan to write a book on debates between Lutherans and Reformed in the um, sixth, sorry, 15th century, 16th century. And um, once I'd done that, and that we had a podcast about that um, maybe a year or two ago, I thought, well, I know enough about the 16th century that it would be interesting to go on into the 17th century. So that's what I did. And that's the book we're talking about. 
since then, I've been working hard on two more books, one that would go from Ockham to Beale, um, 14th and 15th centuries, and then another one from for on early scholastic Christology from 1050 to 1250. Um, so this is, a, a, as far as I know, um, they're going to, going to be the latest in the sequence, the one we're talking about today on the 17th century. And so that was really the background to how I came to write it. And I would say it's, I, I go quite densely or deeply into two sets of issues, one on the metaphysics uh, involved in Christological um, speculation, and quite a lot on the semantics as well, because that turns out to be important for some of the traditions particularly. So maybe we, as we get started with with thinking about this particular book, uh, what features in it significantly are the sort of union and communion theories of about the hypostatic union. Um, so maybe can you just sketch out briefly what these two sort of theories are? What do they agree on? What do they disagree on? And maybe to help place it, give some examples of important thinkers that would be in one category versus the other. Wonderful. Thank you. So what I um, discovered writing this book um, on the 17th century was that um, you could really quite usefully categorize theologians into two groups. One of them... um, well, I called them union theories and communion theories. Um, And the distinction there um, is whether or not you think that in addition to Christ's human nature and the divine person, you need some kind of extra entity that ties the two things together or not. And so typically, um, you might think, well, you need um, a relation or some union entity, a created thing that is a tie that would get the the human nature um, attached to the divine person or not. So that I call that the communion theory, the, the union theory. The communion theory is that there is no such tie and that, you know, once you've put the divine person and the human nature together, they just cling together automatically. Um, a tip, the sort of paradigm case for that in the Middle Ages, I think, is, a, is Aquinas, where you have, you know, um, you've got the divine essay and the human nature lacks its own essay or existence, and it just plugs in, right? And once it's plugged in, they stick together. I thought of it, you could think of it like Velcro, okay? Stick two pieces of Velcro together, and just in virtue of their intrinsic structures, they cling together. So that's the communion view. The union view is that, no, there, is, there has to be some kind of created tie. Otherwise, they would just fall to bits. Um, and the paradigm case for that is going to be Don Scotus. I think it was actually the majority view in the Middle Ages, really from Bonaventure onwards. And Aquinas's view, the communion view, falls out of favor until you get to Cajetan. So uh, going back to the analogies, you might compare two bits of Velcro that stick together automatically or two bits of Lego with um, some kind of, you know, some kind of glue that you would need in addition. So, you know, two wooden building blocks, you need glue or cement or something to stick them together. Uh, And that would be the union view. And typically in Scotus, what you need is 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 a relation in one of Aristotle's categories. Um, a relation of union of some kind. Um, and so that's the basic difference between the two. So that, that's really helpful. And what 
it does seem important are a lot of various terms that go on in explaining this. So maybe you help me think through, I mean, you can tell me which terms are the most important and which are most relevant. So when I'm thinking about like the nature of accidents or dependence relations, um, or maybe the order of subsistence and the existence for each model, I mean, what are the important sort of metaphysical machinery that's going on behind behind them and how are they functioning? Okay, thank you. So I mean, very typically, someone who accepts a union view, that is to say a view which requires some extra entity to tie the two things together, that person would typically use as their model to analyze the the hypostatic union, the relationship between an accident and a substance. So that typically you might think you get an accident and a substance in the same place. They need some kind of tie that's going to stick them together. I mean, we call that a dependence relation. The accident depends on the substance and the accident informs the substance, which is a technical term for saying it sort of actualizes the substance's capacity for bearing or having the accident. And so typically, if we're going to model the um, incarnation in this way, we would say that there is some kind of dependence relationship between the human nature and the divine person. Um, but so, so to that extent, like the relationship between an accident and a substance, but without the informing relationship, because the divine person is pure actuality and has no capacities to be actualized. So we'd say the human nature depends without informing and we would typically understand that dependence to involve some kind of relation in one of Aristotle's categories. And so it would be the same in the substance accident case and in the incarnation case, except that um, you have in the substance accident case dependence and informing. And in the incarnation, you have just dependence, um, where there's an obvious sense in which an accident depends on its substance for its existence. And in the same way, the human nature in some sense depends on the divine person for its existence. Typically with the um, union model, I mean, sorry, with the communion model, my own terminology is confusing me at the moment. With the communion model as spelled out, let's say in Aquinas, typically you would think of the human nature as something more like a part of the divine person. And the point about parts is that um, they, as it were, automatically stick to their whole once they're united. And so the human nature would be like that. And as Aquinas would put it, it shares in the divine essay. So the divine essay, as I was explaining earlier on, as it were, takes the place of the existence or essay that the human nature would have had had it not been united. So do either of these model? I mean, naturally, when I think of Thomas, uh, Oftentimes in contemporary parlance, you would think of things like classical theism, sort of doctrines like immutability, simplicity, impassibility. Does the union model have any challenges for affirming similar doctrines like that? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, so oddly enough, you know, um, if you think of the Thomist tradition as the great champions of divine simplicity, um, they accept the communion theory, not all of them, as you would see in the book, but many of them. Um, that seems to raise sort of composition problems because it looks like there's some sense, and Aquinas said this following John of Damascus, there's some sense in which the divine person is composed uh, 
at least of the two natures. The union model, right, Scotus's view, in fact, um, since there's a, a stronger sense in which the nature is extrinsic to the person, doesn't seem to raise such difficulties. So if I were very keen on divine simplicity, which of course Scotus wasn't, I would adopt Scotus's model because Aquinas's one is much harder, I think, to square. And it's, it's, it's quite interesting the extent to which, in the, especially in the 17th century, but really from Cajetan onwards, um, the Thomas tradition is quite happy to embrace all sorts of composition language in this context. Um, it surprised me because I would have thought they would have been averse to it, but that turned out not to be the case. Now, one thing I, I, I'm super interested in hearing your take on. So you made the claim somewhere early on that Reformed theologians generally follow Scotus um, as a result of, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last, I mean, Peter Martyr Vermigli. Vermigli. Um, I think this is probably surprising to a lot of our listeners, uh, particularly contemporary Reformed thinkers, because they seem to think that the Reformed tradition is purely or majority uh, indebted to Thomas. So can you explain why you think Scotus is more prominent here, at least? Yes. Um, I mean, I know, I, I'm only speaking for Christology, not for anything else here. Um, I think the reason why I've realized this more vividly since completing a book on the um, 14th and 15th centuries, Scotus's view <clears throat> really was just the general medieval view, right? So almost everyone thought that the human nature depends on the divine person in a way akin to that in which an accident depends on a substance and that it involves some extra entity, the dependence relation itself that has to tie the two together. Um, almost everybody accepts that and you don't find Aquinas's view in the 14th and 15th centuries really at all, at least until you get to Dennis the Carthusian in the 15th century. <clears throat> um, so in a way, it would just be natural to follow Scotus's view because everybody did. I think Luther did. I made that point in a book I wrote on the Protestant debates in the 16th century. Um, so I think it's no surprise, right? It's odd to accept Aquinas's view. Um, and we, I, we encounter some people in the, in the 17th century who did. Um, really, the problem was that Aquinas's view was thought to be incomplete and not to give you a good theory. And it wasn't really until Cajetan in the early 16th century, um, whom I discussed briefly in the book, it wasn't until Cajetan that a, a sort of solution to the residual problems with Aquinas' theory was actually found. Um, and so it was only after that that, that the, the opinion really became a viable option. So this is fascinating. So I, I don't know if you know, like I'm in more evangelical context, and there has been a significant interest in Thomas Aquinas, um, though not a paired interest in other thinkers like Scotus. So I think it's always interesting to highlight sort of the variegated nature. And sometimes the, the it seems for Thomas, he's not the main option. He's sort of an aberrant uh, viewpoint. So I always think this is fascinating um, and helpful for our listeners. So I, I know you do Lutheran and Reformed and some other viewpoints. I, I'm particularly interested in Reformed theologians. Um, who is it 
who are some of the main figures that opt for a communion versus a union account of the hypostatic union? Uh, do they have any unique reasonings compared to other groups versus, say, Lutherans? Okay, that's very interesting. The only Reformed theologian I found who adopts Aquinas' view and quotes him, though without saying so, is Polanus. Um, now, why he did that, I don't know. Here's the, here's the problem that they had in the 17th century. Once the Lutheran views have become pretty consolidated, they end up solving a load of problems that they had by appealing to Aquinas. And so... Um, and uh, more or less in the something like Cajetan's version, right? And they've so all of the disputes that went on between the Reformed Party and the Lutherans in the 16th century um, sort of reiterate themselves in the 17th century, but with the added thing that the Lutherans are now expressly adopting Thomist views um, in order to solve problems that their earlier Christology had raised. Um, and so these Thomist views, I think, get associated with um, Lutheran aberrations as the Reform Party saw it. Um, and there was nothing, Thomas was offering nothing for them. Uh, whereas, um, I mean, they thought that there's always the danger with communion views like Aquinas's and so on is that they're always tending to the Monophysite side of things and not, I think, in fact, but you could read it that way. Um, and it was exactly the same worries that the Reform Party had had with Lutheran Christology in the 16th century, repeating themselves in the 17th century, but now associated with views that are distinctively Thomist. So there would be no reason whatsoever for a Reformed theologian to want to adopt Aquinas rather than the standard medieval view which is very clearly expressed in Vermili, for example. I had assumed that he was the conduit, but I think now it was just in the air everybody accepted Scotus's view on this, with the exception of certain Thomists uh, and the Lutherans. So that that's really interesting. And as you meant, I mean, as we talk about sort of the, the Thomistic, uh, I guess, communion view and the sort of... so. The way I've understood it, there's traditionally like sort of a three-part Christology when it comes to that sort of approach, where you can correct me if I'm wrong, where you have sort of the divine nature, and then the human nature has sort of two parts, the body and the soul. So if you opt for a union account, does that change sort of the, does that mean you want to reject compositional Christology in that sense, or would you still affirm it? Um, how, how would I think about that? Um I mean, there are lots of ways in which people could go. If you think right the way back, if you think right the way back to the three opinions that Peter Lombard re reports in the 12th century, they're all distinguished in terms of composition claims. So either composition of body and soul or composition of body, soul and divinity, which turned out to be the majority mainline view, or um, no composition at all. Now, the, the issue turned out to be important because some people thought that the correct reading of Constantinople 2, where it says Christ is in two natures and out of two natures, would involve composition. Now, I don't think you would need to say that, right, because to say that something's out of two natures, for example, um, doesn't entail that they're composed. You would have to have an account of what it is to be out of two natures. And that account would have to involve composition. Um, 
I did lay out in the book on the 17th century various different kinds of composition claims. I don't think they struck me as all that important because for almost all thinkers, barring the Lutherans and some of the Thomists, the composition claims were understood in terms of a, a, a composition of two things or where the one is simply united to the other by some kind of depe dependence tie. Um, and it didn't strike me that there was anything especially interesting in that account of composition. It struck me the interesting composition claims really would come from those Thomists who thought that there was no joining mechanism at all. So the, the communion theorists who really thought that the divine subsistence, let's say, entered into composition with the human nature to make a human person. Um, I don't think you need to, in my own views, you don't, I don't think you need to say that or anything like it to secure um, the truth of the incarnation. So in the book, in a way, my favorite thinker was Maastricht, who denied all of this stuff, all of the composition, any claim that the human nature subsisted, um, and just had pure dependence of the nature on the person. I thought that was a good idea, because as soon as you start thinking of divine subsistence communicated to the human nature, you think of the human nature as subsisting. And then if you think of the human nature as subsisting, it looks like you're thinking of it as a person. Obviously, you don't mean to be doing that. So then I just wonder what what's to be gained that isn't just adding confusion so Maastricht was my chap in this book. I love that. That's that's awesome. Now I'm going to have to go reread his section on this. So, do, I mean, the compositional stuff, I, I want to ask one more question on that. Does composition, does that entail any form of potentiality? Because um, I think just naturally, if you're not familiar with all the distinctions that go on, you would think that composition would imply some form of potentiality. So maybe... Does it actually do that, or is there? I know you mentioned Duran's sort of distinction um, that he makes, where he's trying to to avoid this. Is that a useful way to get around that? Okay, thank you. I mean, so Durand de Saint Poncin in the early 14th century makes a distinction, which is taken up by a lot of the Thomists, between two kinds of composition. You've got composition of two things, and composition of one thing with another. So composition of two things typically might be matter and form composing a substance. Composition of one thing with another might typically be the composition of a substance with an accident. Now, typically the latter of those, composition of a substance with an accident, was supposed by the medieval thinkers to involve potentiality on the part of the substance. We've already talked about that because that was the thing which we want to exclude in the incarnation relation. Um... Now, depending on your metaphysics, you may or may not be committed in any case to a, a distinction between actuality and potentiality. Suppose you are committed to such a distinction, as the people who are the subject of the book were, what grounds would you have for saying you could have a composition without the actualizing of potentiality? And so typically people just said, well, here we have a case of composition without the actualizing of potentiality. Um, and so my thought was, well, you know, is that not just arbitrary? There's no real analysis of what that kind of relationship might look like. Um, 
So you can probably tell I didn't, I don't really like the composition talk very much. Um, I definitely don't like it for the people in the 17th century because um, it just has a whiff of the um, ad hoc about it. And, you know, speaking as a philosopher, the ad hoc is to be avoided if at all possible. So, our, I mean, I, I don't want to zoom forward to today too quickly, but I do ha- just, you mentioned that makes me ask the question, are there models today in the contemporary sort of Christological discussion that you think are more useful than others? Or maybe would some, is the distinction in sort of models of the hypostatic union still similar to the union and communion sort of distinction that's going on here in the 17th century? Would we want to say that people like Oliver Crisp and other people are in one sort of camp or has that significantly shifted since then? Um, I don't think it's significantly shifted, but I'm going to deflect the question in the following sense that I don't think I feel sufficiently um, on top of modern, recent Christological metaphysics actually to have a view. I mean, I do have views of my own about which what might be um, good ways forward. Um, see, I don't like Scotus's view because I don't think there are real relations. Um and the reason I don't think there are real relations is the same reason that Occam had for at least casting doubt on them, which is, you know, suppose that there are, there's a, like, suppose the similarity of two white things, two table tennis balls, involves something over and above the two white table tennis balls. And suppose it involves something in the one table tennis ball, which is a real similarity relation to the other, and something in the second table tennis ball that is a real similarity relation of that table tennis ball to the first one. Um, that can't be because, you know, suppose I've got a table tennis ball with me here in the Midwest, suppose, and suppose another one is made. I don't know where they make table tennis balls. Perhaps there's a, 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 um, perhaps there's a table tennis ball factory here somewhere. I don't know, in Philadelphia, right? So the, the, the Philadelphia table tennis ball appears what happens to my table tennis ball here? It's supposed to get a relation of similarity. But how can that be? Because the first table tennis ball was miles away, right, in Philadelphia. So that can't be right. I feel very, I feel quite sympathetic to communion views um, without composition, because you don't have to have composition. I feel very sympathetic to the view that you find in in the 17th century and Gregorio de Valencia, the Jesuit who was an opponent of the Lutherans. Um, And he followed Gregory of Rimini in thinking that there's nothing different at all. So when the human nature is united to the divine person, what happens to the ontology, right? What happens in the world? Nothing. It's just a divine volition, right? It's a completely voluntarist view. That seems like a possible view to me. Um... Um, another possible view you find in Gabriel Beale that there's a grace of union. It's something created. It's like a quality. So you theorize it in terms of grace rather than in terms of union as such. So you have different varieties of non-relational graces, as you know, um, let's say sanctifying grace or justifying grace on the one hand, grace of union. And in virtue of that possession of that grace, you could have a human nature united to a divine one. You'd need the right need to write semantics then, but as long as, you know, as long as I, so the, the normal 
believer could be united to God by means of the, let's say, sanctifying grace as a quality like the medieval theologians thought. What it is to be united to God or to participate in God for a medieval theologian is to have a created habit of grace. What it would be to be hypostatically united to a divine person would be to have the correct kind of created habit of grace. That would be a way forwards. I quite like that. And yeah. those would that would be a that would be a union theory. So I think I share the same sort of intu strong intuition that there are no real relations. At least, you know, you've got the two table tennis balls. It doesn't make sense to me to think that there's some entity in the universe that's suddenly created there. Though you mentioned sort of the voluntaristic uh, tilt on some of those where I guess the it's just by the divine will that it happens. Are, are there problems with wanting to go a little bit more voluntaristic in nature? Maybe the problem is just voluntarism has been given a bad name and that's the extent of the problem. It's just being connected to, you know, sort of the boogeyman or something like that. I mean, are there issues with labeling it in that sense, do you think? Um, well, labels are important from a rhetorical point of view. Um, that's true. But I mean, it seems like a completely accurate label in this case. Um, and if people don't like the word, and I don't really care about that. Um, that's just um, prejudice or some kind of dogmatism. Now, I mean, there may well be problems with that, with the view I just uh, outlined from Gregory of Rimini. Um, <clears throat> if you think that you couldn't have hypostatic union without some necessary consequences, let's say, in relationship to Christ's enjoyment of the beatific vision, well, clearly on this voluntarist view, um, you could, right? Uh, that mightn't be a problem. It would depend on what your other Christological desiderata were. But of course, this isn't in the book that we're talking about. This is really in the book that I've just finished writing about the 14th and 15th centuries, which I must say turns out to be extremely interesting. But that's that's for another time. Very awesome. So I, I did want to connect this a little bit. I mean, we, we don't have to go a lot into this, but there's a recent essay that I think I sent you from James Dolzel. So a lot of our listeners like James. I like James. He's I like him because he's a Baptist who's trying to do serious theology. Mm -hmm. And it it seems like there's not a lot of Baptists trying to do serious theology. So in this essay on Christology, he tries he he wants to reject what he calls addition and subtraction models mm -hmm. of the hypostatic union. So he thinks that they would suggest privation of being in God or passive potency in favor of what he calls a terminative assumption model, wherein the word terminates, as in completes or perfects, the assumed human nature by bringing it to the word's own subsistence, supplying it you know, with personhood that it requires for existence and results in no composition. Would you classify that approach as either a union or communion account, or does that fit its own category because terminative sort of assumption i don't see that language a lot in contemporary stuff but i do see it in some of the older literature sure i mean it's it's a it's a classic communion theory it's all over the place in 17th century thomism um to be honest i don't think he said anything which you couldn't have found quite easily in cajetan or somebody like this and certainly later on um john of st thomas for example um, is a very similar view. There's a very interesting history to this, which is in the 
um, 14th and 15th century book because the, the language of termination comes from Peter Oriel. Um, and it gets adopted by the Thomists. It gets rejected by uh, Capriolus, who um, adopt, who who's copied out bits of Peter Oriol from a manuscript in Toulouse, where he was a member of the, the he was a member of the, the Toulouse province of the um, French Dominicans, um, and then it passes into Cajetan with approval, and then it becomes just the standard Thomist way of thinking about things. Um, Subsistence is something like a termination or a completion of a perfection of a nature, which is Peter Oriol's view. Um, and so the divine persons or the divine person's subsistence likewise can terminate or perfect or complete the human nature. Now, it's very interesting in the article you sent to me that I read. Um, it's claimed that this happens without composition because oddly enough, in the 17th century Thomas, it happens with composition, but not with the actualization of passive potentiality. Um, so I found the article quite interesting, but more sort of a useful conduit for transmitting a view which was just standard amongst Thomists um, mm. in the 17th century and indeed in the 16th century among those who followed uh, Cajetan. Because one thing that has emerged from the study is that only half the Thomists followed Cajetan. The other half didn't. Um, but that's another complicated story. That's in, it's in the book. Yeah, so maybe walk me through a little bit of the story. What, what's pulling people to follow Cajetan versus not? Is there right. any external social factors or is it theological or what's going on there? I think it's entirely theological. Um, so think of Cajetan as as representing an authentically and obviously Thomist kind of view, but plugging in all the gaps that were left in Aquinas's. His, I mean, I'll tell you just quickly, the problem with Aquinas's view is you have the communication of an essay to the human nature. The divine essay is communicated to the human nature. And he says the divine personal essay, but there is only one divine essay and that belongs to the divine essence. So everybody thought that what um, Aquinas had said couldn't avoid positing the incarnation of all three persons. When you get to Kajitan, he says, ah, oh, well, let's make a distinction between subsistence and existence, right? It's, it's a distinction we well known to non-Thomists beforehand, but Kajitan uses it and says, ah, oh, well, what happens is, in fact, it's the divine person's subsistence. That is to say, the divine person's personal property, filiation, gets communicated to or is the thing that terminates or perfects the human nature. And then after that, the, the divine existence goes along with, as it were, but you've already secured the incarnation of just the one divine person. Right. <clears throat> now, all the Thomists sort of agree with that, but something very important happens in the, in the, in the 1590s, and that is Suarez. And Suarez adopts a theory of modes that he's got from his 10 years earlier Fonseca, um, and Suarez says, well, let's think of subsistence as a mode and let's think of the hypostatic union as a mode. And so what you've got and the mode is what does duty for Scotus's real relation. Right. We've replaced the real relation with a mode of union or a mode of subsistence. And so the human nature either has a mode of subsistence or a mode of union. If it's got a mode of union, then it's united to the divine person. And all, most of the Iberian Thomists, not all of them, then follow Suarez in, think, in, in adopting a union theory, right? Not a communion theory at all, where the tying entity is Suarez's 
mode of a mode of union, right? So you would find this in, um, and the most well-known um, Iberian source would be the Corsus Theologicus of the Salmanticenses, um, which is a marvelous text. I enjoyed reading it greatly, and they follow Suarez in adopting a union model, but within the context of agreeing with Cajetan that you've got to have some distinction between the divine subsistence and the divine existence. And there's got to be a sense in which the divine subsistence is somehow communicated to the human nature. But since this communication occurs only by means of Suarez's mode of union, you're going to go very weak on composition claims compared with, let's say, Cajetan. So I know, and I probably should have just defined this at the beginning, but essay versus essence what's the difference here? I know a lot of our listeners are probably, they might think like, I, I don't understand. Is that the same thing? Or yeah. is there a distinction there? So for those who've listened this far and you don't know what that means, now now now's your chance to understand it. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. We did go rather in at the deep end there. I mean, it is a complicated subject, admittedly. Okay, so typically Thomists would want to make a distinction between essence and existence. That's not the case in the 14th and 15th centuries, but it certainly is a case in the 16th century and onwards. And typically Scotists and nominalists would not. Um, why? So why that? So an essence is what it is to be such and such. If you plug an existence into that, putting it very crudely in, in, in Thomist philosophy, you get a concrete individual. Right, it's all laid out very beautifully in Aquinas's early work, De Ente et Essentia, um, where you have this idea: there's an essence; it can exist in two ways, in a thing, or in the mind. Right, it goes back to Avicenna. It's, it's sort of all this. Um, sorry, I'm going to. I don't want to digress. Um, so, what happens then in the in the case of the incarnation, in some sense, is that you get the essence, but it gets the divine existence plugged into it. Um, and as I said earlier on, the, the problem that people saw with that was the divine existence was common to the three persons. So now we may, we say, aha, there's something else that's particular to a person. That's their subsistence. So in this case, affiliation as a personal property of the sun. And you can plug that into the human nature along with the divine existence. And it's got, you've got the same basic model from Avicenna being applied to the incarnation. You've got a human essence. You plug an existence in putting it really crudely, okay? Um, and you get, in this case, um, a hypostatically united human nature. So that's the sort of picture. Yeah. Now, I do, I, I'm really interested in your study of this period. Were there any thinkers that you said, you came into it prior to doing all the research and writing and thinking, this person's probably really good on this topic, or you had a preconceived notion and you realized, no, this person's actually not as good on this material as I thought. And maybe vice versa. Are there anybody you thought this person wasn't as interesting or useful or as, uh, as helpful in this area? And you decide after reading more that yes, actually this person is really important and deserves more uh, publicity. Um, I, I think they're all really important and deserve more publicity. Um, Oh, I thought the I found the Scotists sort of disappointing, and the reason for that is that they didn't have so much work to do, right? Because Scotus has basically left a pretty well worked out system, um, and so the actual card carrying Scotists, there was nothing really for them to do. A few little small objections around the edges, um, whereas Aquinas. 
you know, he leaves what looked to me like a train wreck. And there's a load of work for people to do to sort it out. Um, and that's very interesting, um, particularly in the way in which Kajitan went about sort of plastering the whole thing back together. Um, but I was expecting Kajitan to be good because, you know, he's extremely intelligent um, and well-known. Um, I found some of the some of the some of the Thomists not awfully interesting, and so I didn't I just I didn't do as many as I might have done. But still, those chapters are awfully long, uh, and it's a bit of a burden to plow through. I was amazed at how wonderful I really enjoyed the, the Salmanticenses, who are adopting really a Scotist slash Suarez kind of reading of of Aquinas. I was surprised at the extent to which the Thomists diverged from Aquinas, and not not the ones, not the French and Italian ones following Cajetan, but the, the Iberian ones, where everything is inflected through Suarez, and people I'd assumed were just going to have nothing of interest to say. In fact, said a great deal of curious stuff. But um, yeah, that I suppose I was the Lutherans. That's a thing unto itself. One thing that did surprise me um, was that there was a vast amount of influence from the Catholic side to the Protestant side, but never anything the other way around. Um, yeah, do you know, do you have any ideas or hunches of why that might be? Because I found that pretty interesting too. Why, I mean, why would the Catholics follow the views of these heretics? I mean, what? there's no possible motivation. <laughs> Whereas, you know, Protestant theology was in a state of formation. It desperately needed um, sources, information, ways of conceptualizing and thinking about things. And where is that going to come from? It's going to come from the past, fundamentally, that is to say, the scholastic past. Um, But also, it turns out it's going to come from the present as well. What was most surprising to me was the extent to which uh, the Thomist tradition was was influential on the Lutheran one. But that was that's a complicated narrative all of its own. Yeah. Do you so we have a lot of listeners who are students or are you know, they're they're somewhere in their master's program or they're in a PhD program somewhere. Do you have any advice for them when it comes to thinking about these sort of topics? So it seems that oftentimes you can become really good at sort of just the philosophical literature, or you can become really good at the historical side, and there's not a lot of tie-in between uh, making sure these disciplines mesh together, and mm-hmm. I feel like you're one of the one of the few who who do it well. So, do you just have advice for people who are studying and learning and training now on how to make sure that you are not isolating yourself from a whole world of material, but able to put all the worlds together? So that's very hard. I got, I mean, a general, a general. Um, thought would be um, from a theological perspective I find people who write merely on matters theological tend to shut off um, analytical questions too quickly right, oh the the text says this and here's that word, let's say a notorious one, participation, aha we know what that means, on we go right, well no what you need to think about is you know what are the semantics of the word participation? What does that particular theologian think it is in the world that makes it true that such and such a thing participates in something else? Um, 
constantly question the things that you read. It's very interesting in my life, moving from a theology department to a philosophy department, just how very different the intellectual approaches are. And I'm, I'm talking about analytic philosophy here. Um, analytic philosophers will constantly question the things that they're reading for. They'll check them for coherence. They'll check them for counterexamples. It gets you deeply into a, a kind of material. It's not, it wouldn't be a good way of reading Karl Barth. It would be a very good way of reading uh, any um, scholastic author from right up until, you know, the middle of the 18th century. Um, that's a general thought. A specific thought is um, whatever one thinks about the philosophical merits and theological merits of Aquinas, um, everything I read in the Middle Ages um, makes me realize uh, that the way we think about it as everyone was focused on Aquinas, is about as far from the historical fact as you could hope to find. And if we carry on reading non-Aquinas theologians as though Aquinas is the lens, we're just going to get it all completely wrong. That's helpful. I know you mentioned in your, like, it's a, a more lay-level book on, like, introduction to medieval Christian philosophers or something, on the, the chapter on Aquinas, you mentioned about how he becomes really important through the 20th century reception of him. Yes. I know this is a little bit off topic, but along the lines of what you're saying there, um, what is it in the 20th century that's causing that sort of reception that's changing how people understand Aquinas' role in the tradition? Eternity Patris from Leo XIII in 1879 makes Aquinas the model Catholic theologian and philosopher. Uh, and, you know, that was an evaluative judgment, not a historical one. And what's happened, what happened almost immediately was that the evaluative judgment got mixed up with a historical claim which is false, irrespective of what you think of the evaluative judgment. That's what happened, it's quite clear. Very, very helpful. So, one last question of your study here. Are there any, in the 17th century, areas that you would say, if I had a PhD student or someone who's interested in studying and researching more, here are some areas that need some help and need some more work. There's fertile ground for further thinking and exploration in these areas. Well, now that's a, that's a difficult question because I'm not really an expert on the 17th century beyond the Christological stuff um, that I looked at. Um, there are lots of unknown, more or less unknown Protestant scholastics of both Reformed and Lutheran kinds, um, and I think any one of them would repay further attention. Thinking about the Christology, I found some of the Lutherans uh, at times difficult to pin down. Um, any of the great figures of Lutheran orthodoxy, uh, Gerhardt was straightforward enough, but when you get on to someone like Karloff, extremely interesting, or Quenstedt, uh, I didn't look at Hollatz. Any of those people, I think, if one were of some Lutheran interest or persuasion, would repay an awful lot of further work. Meisner, likewise, earlier in the century, and Balthasar Meisner. There's a lot more stuff to be done on the debates between the Tübingen theologians and the Gießen theologians. Um, there's a lot more stuff to be done. I only really looked at, amongst the Tübingen theologians, I only really looked at um, Theodor Tum but there were plenty of others. Um, there's a wonderful book by um, uh, uh, Ulrich Wiedenroth 
on the Crypsis Kenosis controversy, but you know, that's a big general book. There's a lot of in-depth work one could do if that were of interest to one. So thank you, Dr. Cross, for walking us through this overview uh, of sort of the Union and Communion theories in the 17th century. I think this is fascinating. I mean, I think all your stuff is fascinating. So what I'm going to do, if you're listening right now, if you look in the podcast show notes, I'm going to link to several other others of his books. I know I mentioned uh, that introduction to medieval Christian philosophers one. I'll make sure to link to that. There's one uh, on the what the medieval theories of the incarnation that was is that from Dun Scotus to from some Aquinas to Scotus is one I wrote 20 years yeah. ago more than that yeah yeah that one I love that one that was incredibly helpful for giving me sort of a conceptual lay of the land so I'm gonna make sure to link to that one too uh, as well as several others so that you can have easy access where you just click the button takes you to it you can find it and you can be edified by these resources. So thank you, Dr. Cross, for this. This is awesome. Um, and for everybody who's been listening, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.